You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo, and today I'm joined in the studio by Tony Stevens. Tony graduated from the University of Canberra with a double degree in ecology and journalism. She has since worked as a professional science communicator and consultant. At Science in Public, she helped manage some of Australia's premier awards, including the Eureka Prizes and the Prime Minister's Science Prizes. Tony is now the communications manager for the Ecology Society of Australia and the Conservation Ecology Centre. Tony, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So today we want to talk about your science communication expertise and imparting some of that knowledge, but you also are fresh off the 11th Annual Australian Science Communicators Conference, which was held in Melbourne. Can you set the scene for us about what that conference was about? Yeah, sure. So that's the um, the third Australian Science Communicators Conference that I've been to, but the Society of Australian Science Communicators has been around since about 1994, when they kind of identified this this need to be able to communicate science more broadly to the general public. What I found really interesting this year was um, not just the theme of the conference, but also the, the conversations that were being had at the conference. So we were talking about priorities, policies and publics for human survival, which after the, the summer that we had here in Australia with the, the bushfire crisis seemed even more pertinent to be having those conversations about how science communication could could help address some of the challenges that we're facing. And I guess what I noticed was that throughout the conference, the, the way that we talked about communicating science had changed significantly and we, we were thinking about it quite differently to how we had been before. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously from within the science fraternity and the science communication fraternity, you, you've been trying to convey these messages about science and ecology for some time, and there's a bit of anxiety now within the, the community that these messages aren't getting across, at least as much as they need to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, ecological grief is a is a huge problem facing the, the community of ecologists and I f- assume the same is prevalent across, you know, climate scientists and, and the people who have been knowing for, for decades now that, that climate change is going to be a problem and, and feeling like they've been doing their, their best to try and warn the public and try to create change and implement measures that we need to in order to be able to adapt and survive to the future. So, yeah, that, that's really what we were talking about was whether or not we'd succeeded in that and when the answer is obviously, well, we haven't, that the questions are to why. So you were saying just in our pre-record, there's different models of the science communication process, deficits, dialogues and participatory. Can you tell us about those and, and what's been changing? Yeah, so the, the really early idea of science communication was that scientists held all of this knowledge about the world and that the general public didn't hold said knowledge about the world and that because we as scientists had this understanding of the world and could see what was happening, if we managed to educate the public about what we knew, that they would therefore see what we saw and really think that that they should be part of the change as well. And um, that that has really been debunked for for decades. Um, What's interesting about that is if you think in your own mind of the majority of times you hear a piece of 
science communication or, or a piece of science is communicated to you, it's often following that model of an expert telling you a thing that you didn't know before. So the next step that I guess science communication took as a discipline was what was called dialogue. And so that's when you, you've got people like um, knowledge brokers who are often employed by the government to go out into communities. It might be Indigenous people in the Northern Territory um, or people who might be end users of a tool. So there was an example given at the conference of it was a six-year-long program actually that was having scientists from the Bureau of Meteorology meeting and engaging with farmers on a regular basis and actually they got to the point in their relationships that they were developing over that time that the farmers were able to tell the scientists how they were using the data and information and what gaps there were or what they didn't understand and that the Bureau of Meteorology um, modelers and scientists were then able to get a much better understanding of, of the end users of their product and together they were not only able to create better software and, and better information and better product but they developed this relationship of trust over that time as well across something that might usually be a bit of a, a contentious divide, you know, between the scientists in the, the Weather Bureau and the, the farmers. Because if you just try to do deficit model, um, a lot of the times that the meteorologists would be speaking in terms that the farmers didn't understand and it would be alienating to the farmers. Um, so that dialogue model of talking between groups was seen as a, a way of really engaging people that that's a fantastic example because the the time was developed in in the trust and developing those relationships yeah it's interesting that dialogue model and particularly the first example you brought up because the, the learning is really two directional and if yes. the, the meteorologists and the scientists are making changes in their research to better suit the end user you know that that that's beneficial even if the end user doesn't change any of their own behaviors yeah but in this case the end user did if in no more than that they were more trusting of the data that was coming out of the Bureau of Meteorology and, and probably then in a climate change context, you know, more likely to believe, for want of a better term, um, that, that climate change was real because, because they started to trust the experts. But as I said, that took six years. So that's not something that comes easily. So the final uh, method was the participatory model. Uh, what, what's that? So that's much more of what you would think along the lines of, of citizen science. Um, it's people getting in, getting their hands dirty. In the case of a lot of environmental citizen science, they're, they're contributing data. Um, there's a great project being run by University of New South Wales at the moment in the wake of the bushfires that's asking people in bushfire-affected areas to submit photos of species, plants and animals in bushfire-affected areas onto a platform called iNaturalist, which allows ecologists to see where species are distributed around the country and the University of New South Wales will then be able to use that data that citizens are uploading in their you know, post-bushfire recovery science and that type of thing. And so that done well, the researchers are then communicating back to the people who contributed the data, how their data is being used in the science and the people, the kind of users can feel, you feel a part of the science. Do you think there's a risk that those users will kind of self-select and you'll, you'll only capture the people who are already converted from the public to science and to that cause in those uh, citizen science projects? Yeah, look, I, th I think that's often the case with citizen science. There was a great one that the ABC 
ran as their national experiment for National Science Week a few years ago, which was called Wildlife Spotter, which was getting people to identify animals off camera traps, which is something that happens you know, a lot in ecology now, but you can't spend all of your time out in the field, so you might go and set a remote camera up that gets triggered by movement. And because it's triggered by movement, you will just get thousands and thousands of images that might be a fly or um, a blade of grass moving or something. But sometimes it might be a tiger quoll or a threatened species that you're looking for. But getting through that huge amount of data, we're not to the point yet where AI can do it effectively. So they were actually enlisting members of the Australian public to look for you know, kangaroos, wallabies, wombats, koalas. And they, they set up quite a neat little system behind it where you had to have multiple people identify it as the same thing in order for it to come across because you were dealing with people who weren't expert in the field. Um, so there, there's things like that that could appeal to a broader audience, but I think generally anyone getting involved in the participatory is is self-selecting because they have an interest in the topic. But whether that's a bad thing or not, it, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. And I think that's now the point where we've landed. There's kind of the newest model for science communication that um, Jenny Metcalf has come up with, which is calling the Nexus model. So who's Jenny? Um, Jenny's one of the founders of Australian Science Communicators and she runs a company called eConnect out of Brisbane, who are a science communication agency. So she's just finished her PhD on science communication in Australia. And this model that she developed as a part of her PhD was, she's called it the Nexus model. And it kind of looks like a, a flower and it's got all of these different petals of the, the types of audience that you might be trying to engage with and the ways in which you're engaging with them. And so sometimes you might be aiming to do knowledge transfer and so the, def the deficit model works fine with that. If you're actually just trying to teach someone a fact, that's kind of in that petal, but there might be another space where um, you're looking to do behaviour change or advocacy and therefore you have to engage people in different ways. So I guess we're coming as a discipline to realise that you know, no nothing is simple and even with those three, the deficit, the dialogue and the participatory, we're always using a combination of those three and more when we're communicating science. So... Through the science and public job, you've worked quite a lot with scientists in communicating their stories and kind of helping them interact with the science prizes and the media. Um, what advice do you have for, for scientists and researchers for getting their own messages out there? Yeah, look, there, there's a couple of things that you need to be aware of and, and probably the biggest one is still just using lay terms and, and, and lay language scientists and science really has its own its own language and its way of being in the world. And you do need to write a different way for a scientific paper versus what you do for an ARC grant application versus what you do for a prizes nomination. The whole way through to media release, Facebook post, Instagram post, it's really about thinking who your audience is and what you want them to do with the information and so as I was speaking about previously with all the different models, that's really going to be different in every different context. So rather than there being a hard and fast rule about what you need to say and just keep it on repeat, it's actually just always thinking, who am I talking to and what do I want them to do as a result of this piece of communication? 
And, and sometimes what that makes you realise that it, you might think that you need to do a media release because you want someone to know about a product you've just invented. But what you're really looking for is buy-in from the government. So maybe you should have a behind-the-scenes meeting with a minister instead. Or what you're really looking for is a partner organisation. So maybe you should be looking into um, the, the industry that you're trying to target and see if you can have some meetings there. So I think a lot of times people default to, you know, we need a press release, we need to tell the world. But maybe just to think a little bit more about why you need the press release, who are you trying to reach and, and what you want them to do with the information. I guess from the, the perspective of the tertiary institutions themselves, they often like media releases and that broadcast because really they're speaking to prospective students and, and bringing in that kind of goodwill to the university brand as a whole. But as, a, as an individual researcher, your focus might be more targeted than that. Yeah, for sure. And the, the challenge with university media offices is exactly as you identify, that they need to keep you know the vice-chancellor and the bureaucracy happy and they also need to do a lot of student um, attracting and student retention and that type of thing. So there's a lot of marketing that they do in that space. And they don't necessarily have the time or the resources left to do pure research stories. So you often find scientists who have a story that they want to get out who just find that their institutional media teams do not have the time or resources to help them. Um, th there's two ways you can address that problem you can upskill yourself um, I suppose it, it's it's the one solution but there's two avenues so I think you should always upskill yourself anyway the, the first avenue is to upskill yourself to the extent that which you could essentially give to your institutional media team a press release a tweet a photo a video everything that they need to do their job tell them when you're available for interviews you know just you, pre-prepare it for them and, and give it to them. Um, or the other would be to engage an external agency to, to help you with it. So you were saying as well that kind of there are some low-hanging fruit for scientists, with particularly early career researchers, with social media and websites and kind of branding themselves and their research? Yeah. So another aspect, I suppose, of being successful in science these days and in a lot of aspects or areas of the world actually is about having this personal brand and it can feel really uncomfortable especially to scientists when you're used to working as a team and, and speaking as we and th there's even still stories out there like the the lady who was involved in capturing that photograph of the black hole earlier this year and there was a picture of her so she circulated on social media where she was so excited and then from the science community, it copped a whole lot of backlash of, you know, it wasn't just her making the discovery, she's taking all the credit, she's part of a team. And I think if you stick your head above water, you, you're going to have to be willing to accept some of that tall poppy syndrome that tends to happen, um, especially within Australian science. But the flip side of that is that once you have a profile, things do just tend to come your way. So what we would find at Science in Public when I was working on the science prizes is that people might start out with one of the AIPS's Tall Poppy Awards, for instance. And once they'd won a Tall Poppy Award, then the L'Oreal for Women in Science Committee would say, oh, they've already won a Tall Poppy Award. They are a good candidate for one of our early career Women in Science Awards. 
And then once they've had the couple of years of the L'Oreal Fellowship, the Eureka Prize Committee would go, oh, this person's already had two awards. They must be pretty special. And, and so on it would go. And, you know, without picking out actual examples, you, you can probably bring to mind in your own understanding of your own field who those people are who have the profiles. And if you think of how many ARC grants they can attract or how many NH and MRC grants they can attract and how much funding they bring into the organisation, I don't think it's a coincidence because as much as the grants are meant to be assessed on merit, they see a name that they've seen in the newspapers and that person has some, some status or some profile attached to them, they're probably more likely to see that as a good place to spend money. Um, Going back to the start of your question, the best place to start practising, I suppose, is social media. And if you're a PhD student in a lab and your lab has a Facebook page, you can actually start you know, practising your skills of putting your hand up to manage your lab group's social media profiles. But by the time you're kind of getting into postdoc and starting to look for your own funding and push your own projects and that type of thing, I'd really recommend that people set up their own profile. Um, that probably should involve some kind of website where you can actually have the, the more detail of your scientific credibility that you can point people back to. And then it would be a matter of picking the social media that best suited what you were trying to do. So if you are doing you know, a lot of citizen science out in the community, then something like Facebook might be really the place to go. If you're wanting to engage with other colleagues or people in science or even the media, Twitter's a really great place to be. Again, it's about picking your audience and what's going to be most beneficial for you. Don't try and be across all of the social medias because they do take time and effort and if you try to do all of them, you'll never have time to do anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of scientists feel that way about the grant writing process too. There's you know a lot of time sunk into these um, supporting tasks and less and less in the lab. But as you say, if you want to attract funding and kind of build a career in the space, you kind of have to take on that, that mantle um, to be the brand yourself or to have your lab have a brand that can then attract funding into the future. That's right. And I think as much as there's value in every scientist being able to turn up to their family barbecue and explain to all members of the family what it is they do in their job, there will be people who are more comfortable at communicating science and who have, have the skills and who will excel in it. And not everyone needs to be a lab head or a leader or that type of thing. You know, if you really are the person who's a great computer programmer and is happy to work within a team and to work under someone who is taking that leadership role and doing the media interviews and attracting the funding, that's great. Be that person. But if you want to be the person, you know, attracting the funding and driving your own destiny, having a public profile is a really important part of that. So, so how do you construct a good post you know what what goes into let's say a facebook post for a recent bit of research that you've accomplished and you've just got a paper out you want to sell that story what would you actually put into the post before you hit publish sure um probably the best tip on all the social medias is about keeping it short and simple so that's where having the website comes in handy that you can then provide people with with more information via the website. 
So across absolutely everything, whether it be a a tweet or a Facebook post or a media release, you need to have that headline or that hook that's going to grab people's attention. You don't want to just have the paper title. You want to have something that's, that's snappy and interesting and engaging to get people's attention. And then in kind of a really basic concept, what did you do? What did you find? And probably the most important is why should I care or what's in it for me? And that's not you as the researcher, that's to the audience that you're talking to. So you really need to get into their heads and understand why why should somebody care about what you've just achieved? And you'll find over and over again, that's a question that scientists get asked by journalists. You know, I write for the Daily Telegraph or the Herald Sun. You've just done this amazing bit of science. It sounds fabulous. Why should I care? Yeah, so, I mean, there's one thing that I think a lot of scientists get hung up on. We're, we're kind of trained to be very accurate in the things that we say um, and trying to simplify the messages down to snappy headlines often leads to being misleading or, or overselling a message. What can you say to scientists who are kind of uncomfortable putting a, a sexy headline on on their research? Yeah, so I, I think that's where having that website and other pieces of communication that can sit behind the tweet or the Facebook post come into their own because, you know, if you are just engaging with the public, for want of a better term, you will not get their attention without the snappy headline. If it doesn't matter to you to engage with the public, you don't have to. I know scientists whose Twitter accounts honestly just share the latest journal articles and breakthroughs in their fields and they are complete gobbledygook to me. I just have no idea what these molecular biologists are talking about on their Twitter account and that's fine because they're talking to other molecular biologists. But if you're wanting to engage with the public, I I kind of, I don't think of it as dumbing it down, I think of it as smartening it down. And there's always words that you can use to say something more simply without losing the essence of what you're saying. But what you can then do is link people to another page or another post or a longer blog article where for those who do know your field who might question the credibility or the method that you've used or that type of thing that's going to be completely irrelevant to most people, they can go there and see that you're actually legit. Great. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Tony. It's been lovely to get your input into the science communication challenges. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all the science we can fit into Lab Notes this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.